Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I want to sort of integrate the focus on fathers today with the theme that has occupied our thoughts together for the past few weeks on shepherding the flock of God. And I want us to think together of the father as the shepherd of his family. And let's look at a text this morning in the sixth chapter of Ephesians in the fourth verse. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In our previous studies on this theme of shepherding, we have developed this Bible image in terms of pastoral ministry. The word pastor means shepherd, and we focused on what it means to shepherd the flock of God. And it helps me to think of my role in pastoral ministry in terms of this metaphor. I like images. What does it mean to be a pastor? Well, you say, this is what it means in an abstract sense, but you see, the metaphor, the image of a shepherd tending to a flock gives me a picture that helps me to understand what is required of me. Lori had a very intriguing insight as we talked about the theme of shepherding recently. She said, you know, the image of the shepherd includes both the masculine and the feminine virtues. For a shepherd needs the masculine virtues of strength and courage and commitment and wisdom and vigilance. But he also needs the feminine virtues of tender care and comfort and intuition and love and affection for the little lambs. And it's interesting how that both ideas are involved in this imagery of shepherding. Pastoral ministry is both a kind of task that requires protection and courage, like David fending off the lion and the bear to protect his flock. We need that kind of masculine strength, but we also need the tender care and love and affection that Christ gives to his sheep when he carries the lambs in his bosom and gently leads those that are with young. So it's a very interesting metaphor. Now, it is a fact that very little can be done in an hour each week as a pastor delivers God's word on Sunday mornings to the congregation. And it's up to fathers and mothers to take what they receive from God's word on Sunday from the pulpit and then to reinforce and embellish that in their own homes during the week. That's the biblical ideal. Not that the pastor does everything in one hour per week, but he gives the word and then fathers and mothers are to take that truth and to inculcate it, to implement it, to further teach it to their children through the course of the week. And I believe in a very real sense, Christian fathers serve as pastors of their own little flock just as the gospel minister shepherds the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made him overseer, so fathers and mothers are to shepherd the little ones that God has made them overseer of in their own homes. The Christian family, in other words, is both 
fundamental to the health and stability of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, for a church will never be any stronger than the families that make it up. And it's the first proving ground for implementing the principles of Christian living, for living the Christian life. And what I want us to do this morning is to see the connection between shepherding the flock in a pastoral capacity like I try to do here at Bethel Church and shepherding one's own family. And I think we can see that connection or the thought in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where we learn that one of the pre-qualifications for pastoral ministry is proven leadership in the home. You know, as Paul tells Timothy the different things that are necessary to qualify a man to be a preacher or a pastor, one of the things he says is he's to have his children in subjection with all gravity, for if a man know not how to lead his own family, how shall he take care of the house of God? And the idea is that when a man's proven himself faithful on this smaller scale, God then says he's qualified at least in this sense, to take on the greater responsibility of shepherding the church. I believe like a shepherd, a father leads his family. A father protects his domestic flock. And a father provides for the little lambs that have been committed to his care. The Christian father is called to do for his own little flock at home what the pastor does for the Lord's flock in the church on a week-in and week-out basis. So in a sense, you fathers are called to be pastors or shepherds in your own homes. So I want to encourage the fathers here today to think of your role in your own family in terms of this metaphor of shepherding. I think the picture will probably give you a better idea of what it means to be a father. And like a shepherd, a father is to lead his family, he's to protect his family, and he's to provide nourishment and an environment that promotes the safety and the well-being of his little flock. Now, you might say, how can you accomplish such a responsible task? Because fatherhood is a very responsible role. It is a stewardship, isn't it? You know, those children are not yours. Psalm 127 verse 3 says that children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. And those little ones in our homes are given to us for just a short period of time. Actually, we have them for about 18 years as a rule, and that's not that long. You know, they're little today, and then tomorrow they're graduating from high school. And you ask yourself the question, where have the years gone? And my friends, what an important task is given to fathers and mothers to shepherd those little ones. It's a very important and responsible role, for they belong to someone else. They belong to God, and he's lent them to you. You know, Hannah said about Samuel, the Lord has lent him to me, and I've received him from the Lord, and I've given him back, consecrated him to the Lord's service. So if something's lended to you, lent to you, that means it doesn't belong. You're not the owner. Those children are God's. And he's entrusted you with the task of caring for them, shaping them, directing them, protecting them, providing for them for a little while so that they can then 
duplicate the process in their own families. And therefore, it is a very important and responsible role. I love what the Lord says about Abraham in Genesis 18, 19. I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. I trust Abraham to be the shepherd of his family. That's what God is saying. And perhaps you ask today, how may a Christian father fulfill such a responsible calling? And it's significant that the text we've taken in Ephesians chapter 6 is in the larger context that begins back in chapter 5, verse 21, in which he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, and he says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And then he deals with husbands and wives. Notice how all of the teaching in Ephesians 5 and 6 on the home, all of this instruction is couched under the umbrella idea of being filled with the Holy Ghost. My friends, may I say that there is no way for any of us to fulfill the calling God has given to us in any capacity in our lives as pastors, people, Christians, fathers, mothers, students, citizens of our community, there is no way for us to be faithful and fruitful in that task unless we have heavenly help. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. You may say, Brother Mike, I'm not a perfect father. And I would have to say, join the club. You know, there was a time in my ministry when I preached an awful lot on parenting God's way. In fact, that was the title of a series of messages I preached at the first church I ever pastored some 40 years ago, Parenting God's Way. I preached another series of messages on child rearing at the second church I pastored called Biblical Child Training. But I have to tell you, if I were to preach a series of messages on this subject again today, I may have to entitle it, Does Anybody Have Any Suggestions? <laughs> because the fact is, I am not the expert. You know, time and experience has a way of bringing a dose of reality to the idealism of youth. I had a lot of convictions and ideas before I had children as to how a home should operate. But I have to tell you, it's easier said than done. It's not as easy as it looks on the surface. And I have to tell you, looking back today with 2020 hindsight, with a number of my kids already grown and two that are right on the verge of adulthood. I have to tell you, dear friends, that uh, I am not an expert parent. You know, people can get discouraged by going to these seminars and listening to people talk about five things that will make you a perfect parent, you know, five steps. And sometimes when a person sets himself or herself up as the model that you need to do it like I've done it. And by the way, social media has given us a plethora of self-proclaimed experts on every subject where people are bold to say, let me be your life coach. I have to tell you, my friends, I have a life coach, and it's this book right here. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ, and through His Word, He's told me what He requires of me and what I need to do. And I've always wanted to, when somebody says I'm a life coach or I'm the consultant, that is, I'm the expert, and you may be a consultant here today. I don't mean to throw off on that profession. But what I'm saying is that when somebody presumes to 
posit themselves as an expert, they better be careful that the microscope is not turned or the lens is not focused too intently on their own life. My friends, I have to tell you, I'm not the expert. And I certainly would do a lot of things differently and would certainly pray more. The point that I make this morning is I'm not the expert, but the Lord is. And he's told us what a father should be. And the only way that we can fulfill the calling of fatherhood is to be filled with the Holy Ghost. You need the Lord's help in your own heart. And when my heart is full of the Holy Spirit, my friends, may I say that overflows into the lives of my wife and my children, and the same is true for you. So keeping your own heart right is priority number one in godly parenting. So the best way to fulfill this responsible calling is to be filled with the Holy Spirit as the context in Ephesians 5 and 6 bears out. And then I would add this today, focus on the heart. If you're going to shepherd your children, focus on the heart. One of the most impactful books that I've read regarding child rearing is a book by Ted Tripp entitled Shepherding a Child's Heart. And it's, I certainly believe that he's on to something very important. What is involved in shepherding your child's heart? It essentially involves an understanding of two things. Number one, that every child comes into this world prepackaged with his or her own individual makeup. And that's true. I've had a number of children, and they've all been different. I know they all bear the mark of the beast, as somebody once told me. They all look like their dad. But they're all different as far as their temperament or personality is concerned. Physically, they're different. There were some who were naturally athletic and others who had difficulty with coordination and with athletics. You know, physically, children are different. They have different shapes and sizes in a family, right? And emotionally and personality-wise, psychologically, they come prepackaged. And part of a parent's job is to see what the inclination is, like a horticulturalist will take a little tree or a plant, and you notice the tendency to grow in a certain direction. There are some trees that have a natural bent or inclination. Have you ever noticed that? And they will grow in a certain direction, and sometimes they require a little extra tension, perhaps, a guide wire, or maybe tie it to the larger branch next to it so that it will grow in a different direction. Well, may I say children come into this world prepackaged with a certain personality bent or their own strengths and weaknesses, if you please. And parenting, because a child comes with that sort of inbuilt or prepackaged inclination, parenting involves shaping his or her natural tendencies or bends and of course, we understand, don't we, as Bible readers, that the natural bent of a child, so far as their personality is concerned, is complicated and exacerbated by a sinful nature with which every one of them comes into this world. A little child is born into this world not pure and innocent, according to the Bible. A little child is born into this world with a fallen nature. The depravity of our parent Adam has been passed down 
through the centuries in the human bloodstream to every one of his descendants. The only one who's an exception is Jesus of Nazareth who was virgin born. But every one of the rest of us was shapen in iniquity and in sin did our mothers conceive us, as David says in Psalm 51.5. The fact is, a child comes into this world not pure and holy. That's why it's easier for them to tell a lie than to tell the truth. You know, you don't have to teach a child to tell lies. That comes naturally. But you do have to work hard to check their tendency to do the wrong thing and to tell the truth. You have to work hard to teach them the habit of truth-telling. You know, a little infant in the crib will scream bloody murder in the middle of the night. Mom comes running to the side of the crib and the little one looks up at mom and just smiles. You know, that child wasn't hurting or in pain as you were made to believe, but that child is, uh, just wanted some extra attention. He wanted you to stay awake with him during the wee hours of the morning. Uh, even though that's not a very sophisticated way of lying, it is deceptive nonetheless. And I have to tell you, dear friends, that it's easier to make a zero on a test than it is a 100. You know, why does wrong come so naturally to us? Because it's inbuilt. We're, we're born in sin. So we understand that a child comes with their different personalities and temperaments, and that that personality and temperament, which has its own strengths and weaknesses, has been complicated by the presence of a sin nature in every child. Proverbs 22:15a says, "Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child." And Proverbs 29, verse 15b says, "A child left to himself, and that means without fences, brings his mother or his parents to shame. A child who has no boundaries. Now what would happen to uh, livestock if you didn't have fences? Well, they would be open range, free range, right? and they may end up two states away with somebody else. So if they are your property, you want to give them boundaries. And within those boundaries, there's freedom. You say, I want to break free from the traces. I want to have real freedom and not to have any restrictions. Well, a child without fences left to himself. That's what the phrase means in Proverbs 29:15. brings his parents to shame. So it's the job of mom and dad to say no to say, here are the boundaries. You say, I feel like I'm being unkind when I say no. No, my friends, you're actually showing love for it's supremely unloving to leave that child without boundaries, without fences. So we understand that natural sin nature. Isaiah 53, 6 says, it's the nature in a sheep to stray. All we like sheep. We're talking about shepherding today, right? And all we like sheep have gone astray. It's our nature. And children are no exception to that rule. But secondly, shepherding your child's heart involves not only understanding they come with a prepackaged set of inclinations, both in their natural temperament and personality and because they have a sin nature, but it's important to understand that if the Lord is pleased to quicken the heart of that child, and you can't do that, and I can't do that as parents. I can't make them children of God. I can't give them the love of God in their hearts. But if the Lord is pleased to quicken the heart, then that child now has a Godward inclination. And the parent's role then is to provide shaping influences and a life environment that will allow for the development 
of that Godward inclination and minimize the negative tendencies that that child has and was born with into this world and maximize the call of God upon their lives. Now let's turn to our text. With that lengthy introduction, which took about half of our time together this morning, let's turn to the text. And I want you to notice both a negative and a positive exhortation in the text. Ephesians 6, 4, And ye fathers, here's the negative, provoke not your children to wrath. That's the negative. Here's the positive. But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And I think you have a very important balance here between what not to do and what to do. And both of them seem to have something in common, and that is they deal with the child's heart, the development of the child's heart. Now, a lot of parents only think about the child's body. I want to keep my kids fed. I want to give them a safe place to sleep and take them to the pediatrician and get their checkups and to the dentist and have braces and, you know, make sure they get educated. And they only concern themselves with the externals in child development. But biblical fatherhood, my friends, focuses on more than just the physical development and safety of the child. Biblical fatherhood and motherhood, for that matter, should focus on the heart, shepherding the child's heart. And if we're going to shepherd their heart, there's a negative dimension involved here. Ye fathers. By the way, the word father here gives us the word paternity, the Latin word pater. And it is used in Hebrews 11:29, I think it is, to talk about Moses' parents. So it can include both mother and father. But here, the translators of your King James Bible have translated it by the masculine term, ye fathers. So specifically, God is talking to fathers. Now, would you agree that we have a crisis of fatherhood in this country? Oh boy, we have the fathers who have abdicated their responsibilities in many respects. They are focused on their jobs, their hobbies, their careers. But when it comes to their investment into their children, I suggest today that many fathers are passive and absentee fathers. And there's a crisis of fatherhood. We see it in the inner cities where many fathers have abandoned their responsibility to be good role models and examples to their offspring. And they've left them to be raised by single moms. But I suggest we see it not just in the inner cities, but in all of popular culture. Our society is riddled with the plague of absentee fathers today. And I think that that's the reason our country's in the shape that it's in. So many fathers have not only abdicated their responsibility and turned it over to the government or left it all to the wife or the mother to do, but so many fathers today feel inhibited, intimidated, and are afraid to exert the masculine virtues that we were talking about, like leadership and initiative and strength and courage, because they've been told that all of that is toxic. I think we've witnessed, and no offense to the females, the ladies here today, but I think we've witnessed the effeminization, an entire effort to effeminize men in our country, in our society today. And masculinity, my friends, does not have to be toxic. 
In fact, the strongest man is tender. The best of men is loving. It doesn't mean that you exert your leadership by brute force and you rule like a commandant rules an army. No, my friends. I suggest that a man can be masculine and still be gentle, loving, kind, and tender. By the way, that's what the word meekness in the Bible means. Meekness is strength under control. It's like a wild stallion, a maverick, that runs over the high plains, but now he's been harnessed, and that strength now can be productive. It's under control. He can plow a straight furrow. He can carry a cowboy, you know, to check on his herd. Before, he just ran wild. He's strong. He's full of energy. But now it's been harnessed. That's meekness. And that's what masculinity in a biblical sense is. So what I'm saying this morning is, if you're going to shepherd your little flock, fathers, there's something not to do. Here's the negative. Like a shepherd guards his flock, a father is to guard their safety, not only in a physical sense, but to guard their heart from all of the potential spiritual dangers that are out there. You know, a shepherd like David says, I'll step between the sheep and the mountain lion or the sheep and the panther, and I will defend the lamb even at cost to my life. That's courageous. That's strong. That's commitment. That's masculine. And ye fathers, he says, I want you to be careful not to lead your child's heart into anger and discouragement and sin. Fathers, provoke not your child to wrath. Now, interestingly, the parallel to this verse is Colossians 3.21, where he says, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they should be discouraged. Notice he's talking about a heart issue. He says, don't foster an environment in the rearing of your child to the point that your child becomes an angry person. Now, I've seen a lot of angry children over the years, and it seems to be increasing. You can tell a child when the light has gone out of his eyes. There's a natural vitality in youth. There's a natural enthusiasm for life, a playful kind of spirit. And you see a child that has been raised in a dysfunctional home, in a home where there's no love, no direction, not a good example. You see children who are brought up in an environment that is not healthy and holy. And it's not long before those children develop a somber mindset. And you can see it in their countenance like a soldier that's been in the jungles of Vietnam. You know, they have sort of a survival mentality now and they've lost their childhood in many respects. They're not children because they've been forced to deal with issues that are crude and crass and vulgar. Well, fathers are to be careful not to develop an environment in their homes and family life so that their children grow up to be angry. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. So we're talking about guarding the child's heart like a shepherd guards his flock so that that child does not become an angry child, so that that child does not become exasperated. That's what the word wrath means. Do not exasperate your children or make them resentful so that they become discouraged. You know, teen depression is a problem today, and I know that there can be medical reasons for depression, but I suggest for consideration that a lot of what we see in young people today is a carryover from 
the kind of home life that they've experienced growing up. And fathers need to be shepherds. They need to take the leadership in this sense that they are careful to guard against angry children, wrathful children, children who have a seething volcanic rage in their hearts that spills over into a sense of self-doubt and discouragement. Do not build up resentment in your children. Now, we understand, don't we, the biblical principle that behavior is rooted in the heart. Luke 6.45 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So you want to know what's in somebody's heart? Listen to how they talk. Because the heart is the control center for life. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence. Guard your heart. Put a sentinel on duty. Put a watch detail on the task because out of it are the issues of life. All of life comes from the heart. We understand that principle, don't we? Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So you say, here, I'm watching your behavior, but you see that behavior can be traced back to heart attitudes. That's the point. Therefore, shepherding a child's heart involves working back from the behaviors that we're witnessing in our children to the heart from which that behavior springs. And perhaps you ask the question, Brother Goins, what sort of things would foster an attitude of anger and resentment and discouragement in a child? And let me just give you a list real quickly. I would say the first mistake many fathers and mothers make is passivity. Many fathers, again, neglect their children's development in an emotional and spiritual and intellectual sense, and they content themselves only with providing you know, a bed to sleep on and food on the table. And they say, well, I've done my job. Well, no, you actually haven't. You're just getting started. You know, that is part of it. But biblical fathers are called to be invested. And I think public enemy number one is this attitude of selfishness and passivity. Eli, in your Old Testament, is the quintessential passive father. We're told about Eli that his sons made themselves vile and he restrained them not. He did not ever say no. He was just checked out, you know, and he never challenged them. And you say, well, that's, I'm not, I don't like them getting upset with me. I don't like the pushback, so I'm just not going to say no. Sometimes a man has to be willing to step up and say the obvious, speak the obvious for the long-term benefit of that child's development. Not only is passivity, neglect, and selfishness a problem with fathers. That's one way that we provoke children to anger. Children that grow up in a home like that where the dad is checked out tend to grow up angry and discouraged. But I suggest partiality. You know, Jacob was a partial father. I mean by that that he played favorites with his kids. Remember, he made Joseph a coat of many colors. But the rest of them did not have that coat. And I understand how that could happen. Obviously, if you have a passel of kids like I've had. There are some that will stand out to you as being more attractive. Perhaps they're more like your traits than others. But it's important for every parent never to play favorites because that only builds resentment and jealousy and sibling rivalry. Jacob was a partial father. And then perfectionism 
can provoke children to anger and lead to discouragement. You know, there are some parents who are never satisfied. You bring home a report card with all A's and one B, and they say, why didn't you make all A's? Why did you make that one B? Instead of saying, well done, for all the A's you made, now let's work a little harder on that B, the parent is perfectionistic. They hold their children to a standard that they themselves cannot reach. And sometimes that even develops into put-downs and name-calling. It's, it's okay to have little pet nicknames, but I'm saying when you start calling a child, you know, idiot or stupid and putting them down saying you'll never amount to anything and I have a standard that you'll never be able to reach, that develops anger, wrath, discouragement, resentment. And then I would say hypocrisy. This inconsistency, you know, holding the children to one standard, again, that you can't meet. And by the way, teenagers are hypocrisy detectors in parents. They reach a point where they can spot any inconsistency and they're not afraid to call you out. But even though they can see it in you, they often can't see it in themselves. You know, that's the one area of blindness at that point in their lives. But may I say it's important for parents to be consistent. Unpredictability in a parent where you never know what mood that the father's going to be in develops children that are afraid to move. It paralyzes the kids and they eventually become full of self-doubt. They grow in anger and they become discouraged. So passivity, partiality, perfectionism, hypocrisy, we might add, when a parent disrespects a child, when you're unwilling to listen and consider the child's perspective, you know, that child is a human being and deserves the same kind of respect that you would give to a stranger. Disrespect from a parent develops anger and discouragement in a child. And finally, lack of self-control. Now, we could probably list a whole bunch of other errors that fathers make. But on the negative side, we need to guard their heart against anger, guard their heart against wrath, guard their heart against discouragement, guard their heart against exasperation and resentment. And the way we do that, my friends, is by practicing self-control. You know, sometimes when a parent is disciplining a child, they completely lose control. They do it in anger. And it's hard to teach self-control to a child when you've lost control as a parent. By the way, one of the fruit of the Spirit is temperance. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is temperance. That means self-control. And we said that the best way to follow the advice in our text, fathers provoke not your children to wrath, is by being filled with the Spirit yourself. And that means that a parent is going to model self-control and consistency in his or her own attitude day in and day out, not be moody, so th that's the negative. Let's look at the positive before our time runs out. On the positive side, he said, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I want you to notice the language here. The first has to do with your upbringing. Bring them up. He's talking about a godly upbringing. And interestingly, that clause, bring them up, is translated by the words nourish and cherish back in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 29. We're in 6.4, that's our text, Ephesians 6.4. 5.29 of Ephesians, just a few verses earlier, he talks about how a husband should nourish and cherish his wife, even as he nourishes and cherishes his own body. This word bring them up means to nourish and to cherish. 
It's really a horticultural term. It means to rear them tenderly like you would cultivate a flower. Rear your children tenderly to nourish them, cherish them, treat them like something fragile and something delicate like you would a cultivation of a flower. The word is also used in terms of the way someone treats a cherished pet. By the way, some people really cherish not only their flowers, but they cherish their pets, don't they? They spend all sorts of money on them, and they make them little beds, and they take special care of them. They buy them treats, you know, my pet. I mean, that aisle at the grocery store has a lot of customers. The pet aisle. I love what the late Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this verse. If people gave as much thought to the rearing of their children as they do the rearing of their animals and flowers... The situation would be very different in the world today. That's a pretty pointed criticism, but I think it's very accurate. So he uses the word bring them up, nourish them, rear them tenderly. But then he says bring them up in the nurture, and that word nurture means in the training. You train them and disciple them. Children are your disciples, fathers. And this is the more general term, and it focuses on the parent's daily example. You're to shape the child's will by your consistent moral example. That's what this word nurture means. You're to live what you believe in front of them. And by your actions, by your example, that's the idea. You're to train them. And Proverbs 20 verse 7 says, in this light, the just man walks in his integrity and his children are blessed after him. You know what integrity is, don't you? It's being the same person in private that you profess to be in public. It means that you could take a photograph of your private life and of your public life and there would be no double exposure. You could graft who you are at home and who you are in the marketplace and the triangles would be congruent. He means that you're the same person when no one is watching that you appear to be when you're in the public eye. That's integrity. And he says the just man walks in his integrity. One of the best compliments anybody could ever give you is he's the same person or she's the same person at home that they are at church or in public during the week. I want to be that kind of person, don't you? That's the word nurture here. Children thrive, my friends, in an environment of structure where there are reasonable boundaries and a dad's loving authority. That's the idea. You're to disciple them, train them by your example and by a life of structure. And then he uses the word admonition. In the nurture and admonition of the Lord and Whereas the word nurture had to do with example or actions, the word admonition means communicate. It has to do with your words, verbal teaching. The father is not only to live what he believes, he's not only to be tender in his rearing of the children and to nourish them and cherish them, but he is to inform the child's mind by actual communication. Now, by the way, if you're like me, you brethren here, you know, after I've spoken my 10,000 words in the day, about all I can do is <clears throat> grunt, you know, and moan and groan. But may I say that communication, actual information, the exchange of verbal teaching and instruction is critical in a father-child relationship. It's the father's role to inculcate a biblical worldview in his children. 
I repeat that, it's the father's role to teach the children how to think biblically about life. And so many men folk, again, have dropped the ball in that regard. Deuteronomy 6.4 tells us how to do that. He says, speak the word of God to your children when they lie down, when you lie down, when you rise up, when you go about the way, when you come in and when you go out. Write them upon the posts of your house, upon the walls, upon the doorposts. He says, I want you to turn every conversation back to the Lord. Yes, my friends, fathers, you're responsible for reading your Bibles to your children, teaching them the Word of God, taking what the pastor says, take notes if you need to, and then go home and go over it with your children and say, did you understand what Brother Goins meant when he made this point from this verse? You say, oh, I'd be embarrassed to do that. You're the shepherd. It's your God-given responsibility. The pastor can't do everything. And if fathers don't do what they should, the church will suffer, society will suffer. We need godly fathers to step up to the plate today and to shepherd their own little flock, to pastor them, as the Bible tells us. All that I've been saying this morning really boils down to these five directives. Fathers, number one, be the leader of your family. Be the leader, not the follower. Don't wait for your wife to lead. You be the leader of your family. Make worship a priority. You say on Sunday, we're going to church. And they may moan and groan and gripe and complain, but you say, load up. Everybody get ready. We're going to the house of God. God has been good to us. And I'm going and you're going with me. Fathers, make worship a priority. Don't even let it be a consideration as to whether you will come with your family to the house of God. Read the Bible at home. Model a godly life by your consistent example. You see, number one on the list, be the leader, for a shepherd is the leader of the flock. Number two, be the protector of their hearts. Monitor the people and the ideas to which they are exposed. Stay tuned in to their attitudes, their relationships, their conduct. Protect them. Be proactive to notice the trajectory of their life and step up to the plate to communicate a loving word of counsel to them as the protector of their hearts. That's what a shepherd is. He's a leader. He's a protector. Number three, be the provider of a godly, mutually respectful environment in which their character may be shaped and developed to the glory of God. Make your home as biblical as possible. And then I would say, number four, keep your own heart in tune with God. Be filled with the Spirit. Stay close to God yourself, and you'll get the resources needed to fulfill this calling upon your life. And the last thing I would say this morning to you fathers, if you're going to shepherd your own family, talk to the great shepherd on a regular basis to solicit his divine help in the responsible role that you've been given. That's one thing I admire about Job in the Old Testament. Job chapter 1 says that Job prayed for his children every day to the Lord. And one of the best things you can do as a father or mother is take your children's needs and cases to the Lord in prayer. I asked a fellow one time, or I made the comment, I said, you never stop worrying about your kids, do you? He said, I did. And I was just kind of shocked. You know, I didn't expect that response. Most people I say that to say, no, you sure don't. He said, I did. He said, it was driving me crazy. I worried 24-7 about them. I said, well, what, how did you stop? He said, now I just pray for them. 
I go to the Lord and I say, Lord, I want you to take care of this one. And I want you to take care of this one. My arms aren't big enough and I can't do it. But Lord, I'm asking you to stay involved and to be merciful to them. Job prayed for his children. He made intercession for them every day. May we take our cue from him and talk to the great shepherd for he knows how to take care of them even better than we do. Now, I have grown children and I have again two that are almost grown. And I have to tell you, I try to pray for each one by name every day. Lord, I bring before you this one. And then I go through my grandchildren. And then about the time I'm warmed up good, I go to the church folks. <laughs> and I talk to him about everybody that I know that needs his help and his blessing. And I try to bring their cases to him. My friends, if I didn't have him to go to, and if you didn't have him, which one of us is strong enough to do what he's called us to do? How wonderful to know that if we're filled with the Spirit and with Him on our side, we can indeed avoid developing the worst traits in our kids and we can foster and promote and shape the environment so that their life trajectory will be in a way that will glorify and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you.